Well, it's great to have another opportunity to preach. This will probably be my last one for a little while, at least to the end of the year. So uh, I always uh, cherish these times where I get to open God's Word. The title of my sermon today is The Aroma of Christ. I was going to name it, What Do You Smell Like? But I didn't think you all would like that. (laughs) A rhetorical question. The Aroma of Christ. And our scripture reading can be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. I'd ask that you would uh, read along with me. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. May God add his blessing to the hearing of his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you now for this time where we can set aside to learn from you at the feet of Jesus, to learn from your word, the word of God. And I pray, Lord, you will use me as a willing vessel this morning and that you would anoint me with the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would open up and illumine our hearts and minds this morning that we might hear all that you would have us to hear from these words. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, the sense of smell is a beautiful gift from God. As you know, you could smell something beautiful like... um, My wife loves, we have jasmine planted outside, the smell of jasmine. But on the other hand, I think most of us would say we do not like the smell of a dirty diaper. (laughs) Or even worse, the smell of death. You know, the sense of smell is closely linked with memory, probably more so than any other of our senses. You might be able to think of those smells from your past, memories that bring back a smile. I could think of my mom's chocolate chip cookies, smelling that. You know, maybe it's apple pie. Or my dad, for all you got, what did men wear back in those days? Old Spice. <laughs> Some still wear it. <laughs> old Spice. I, if, if I smell Old Spice, it brings back memories of my dad. Oliver Wendell Holmes said that memories, imagination, Old sentiments and associations are more readily reached through the sense of smell than through any other channel. Well, in today's passage, the Apostle Paul uses words dealing with the sense of smell, like fragrance, aroma. In fact, if you look in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, they are only used by him. And so this morning, we get introduced to this new way of explaining our Lord and Savior, the aroma of Christ. Some background on the book and a little bit of context first before we jump into the particular text. After founding the church at Corinth, Paul returned to Antioch, ending his second missionary journey. 
And on his third missionary journey, Paul traveled to Ephesus, and he stayed there for three years. And during his stay at Ephesus, messengers came from Corinth with questions and issues that Paul would eventually answer in 1 Corinthians. So he wrote them that letter. But there continued to be problems with the church. It was a very messy church. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. So Paul made another trip to Corinth, and he referred to it even as a painful visit. Well, this second letter, which we read from today, came after that particular visit. And this letter is filled with deep emotion. It reveals not only the nature of Paul's apostolic ministry, but it's kind of his defense of it. And it's an encouraging letter in that, as well as showing God's strength is manifested through human weakness, through the Apostle Paul. He lays out his heart to these people. In chapters 1 and most of chapter 2, Paul gives a standard introduction and a brief history of the difficulties he was encountering in the ministry, as well as, well as why his travel plans have changed. But in verse 14, where we start this morning, it's to start what may be regarded as an extended digression of over four and a half chapters. Suddenly and characteristically, Paul breaks off from his account in order to praise God for his unfailing goodness. One thought leads to another until he picks up the story in, Acts, in chapter 7, verse 5. There is so much rich theology in this short digression, and we're only covering four verses today. I have three points. Number one, our salvation. Number two, the aroma of Christ. And number three, the reaction. So look at number one, our salvation. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Why is Paul thankful to God? Well, it's because God leads him in triumphal procession. Now, this is a, a, a stunning picture of his and our salvation. The ESV and the NIV use the term triumphal procession. The King James and the New American Standard use triumph in Christ. Both those words, triumphal procession and triumph, come from the Greek word triumbuo. And that word is a very specific word used only to describe a very particular event. Paul was describing something, a scene that most of the people back then would have understood. It would be like you and I today explaining to somebody what the Super Bowl is. Most people would know, right? This picture of the triumphal entry is a picture of a military hero in the city of Rome. The victorious general marching into the city after a large, decisive military campaign. And it's a long parade, basically, a procession. And in that parade, first, they have all the city magistrates are there. And they're followed by the trumpeteers and the musicians. Then there are women dropping flowers into the street. And then there are priests spreading their incense. Then the spoils from the enemy followed by the king of the conquered country, then officials of the official army, and finally the last, the general, the hero. Can you see that picture? How many of you seen Ben-Hur, the movie Ben-Hur? Well, there's a scene in that, remember, when Charlton Heston, he's on there with the big, the big conquering general. 
We see this word triumph used only one other time in the scripture, and that's in Colossians 2.15, when Paul is talking about Jesus, where he says, He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Paul had a specific image, right, in his mind that he's trying to convey to the readers. Paul sees himself as part of this God's triumphal procession into the heavenly city, much like a victory parade that an ancient general would lead upon returning to his own city, that being the city of Rome, with vanquished captives following behind the chariots. This city that they're going to is the heavenly city I talked about last week. The gates are open for the conquering general, Jesus Christ, to bring his captives, Paul and others like him, home to the throne of his father. Paul, a former enemy of Jesus Christ, was taken captive by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You remember the story, right? Acts chapter 9, Paul, on his way to Damascus, what was he going there for? He was going there to, excuse me, he was going there to get round up Christians and to flog them, to kill them. But on his way, while he's on his way, a light from heaven shone around him and knocked him to the ground. And he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That Pharisee committed to murdering Christians would now identify himself as a prisoner of Christ. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, he says to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3. So Paul is acknowledging in his thanksgiving that it is the sovereign God of the universe who saves and leads him in Christ and gets him to the final destination. Despite the many setbacks Paul's experienced in his ministry, especially at Corinth, and he was indeed frustrated and discouraged there, he can see the unrelenting advancement of the kingdom of God in his work along the way. And so he gives thanks to God for it. Hear this commentary from uh, Phil Hughes says, from justification until glorification, the redeemed sinner is on exhibition as a trophy of divine grace. For him, the triumphal procession in Christ's train began at Damascus and continued without cessation through all his labors and journeyings to eventually his martyrdom in Rome. Paul was on this procession that was being led by Christ, and he saw that. So this is another picture, really, of our salvation. Christ saves us, and he leads us to the Father. He is with us every step of the way, leading us by his tender mercies. And by the way, there are, as Hebrews says, there is a great cloud of witnesses up there waiting for our, our arrival. That reminds me of that beautiful hymn from Isaac Watts. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching to Zion, the beautiful city of God. Hear the good news of Jesus Christ this morning. Join with us in the triumphal march. So in light of this picture of this march, Paul is using some beautiful metaphors to further explain God's sovereign plan of salvation. Which leads to my second point. We are the aroma of Christ. 
Now, Jesus said in, it, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, what you all recall, we are the salt of the earth. Appeals to taste, right? It says we are the light of the world, which appeals to the eye of seeing. But now Paul says something new. We are the aroma of Christ. Paul uses two different Greek words that are synonyms in these particular passages. One aroma and one fragrance is the way they're translated. In verse 15 where it says we are the aroma of Christ, the Greek word is euodia. It simply means a sweet smell or fragrance. It's used only two other times in the New Testament and by Paul. In Ephesians 5, 2, it says, And walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant, there's that word, fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And we see him using it also in Philippians 4, 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Notice in both of these instances that Paul uses tied to an offering, right? So here's where the differences of words are. This part where it says fragrant is actually the same Greek word that's used in the Septuagint, which was the, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so what he's tying them back to is that same word that's used in the Old Testament when they offered up sacrifices to God as a fragrance. I think Paul is borrowing from that imagery. In the Old Testament, they offered up animals and grains, and it would have a sweet smell, be a smell of like just a great barbecue. I, don't want, I didn't want to say that because I figured you all be getting hungry and you want to leave, leave soon, but just imagine the great, now they didn't do pork, but I mean a great barbecue, the smell that would go up to heaven. You see this in Exodus 29, 25, where it says, And you shall take the ram from their hands and burn them on the altar on the top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma. There's that word aroma. And that's before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. Also notice Paul says we are an aroma to God. We are an aroma. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are a sweet-smelling aroma to God. We must not miss that important point. When we are doing God's work, when we are pleasing the Father, it is as a sweet-smelling sacrifice. Aroma goes heavenward to him. The other Greek word for fragrance that we see in verse 16 is osmi, which also means smell. And you see this word used once in John's gospel. And you'll know this verse very well. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The smell inhabited the whole house. No one could avoid it. Not only does God save us and lead us in our salvation and make us a sweet aroma to him, but he also makes us an aroma of Christ to those that were around, to those we share the gospel. Again, it was, it was customary during those triumphal processions of Paul's day to be a, 
to release the sweet odors of burning spices and the crushing of the flowers underneath all the soldiers when they went in to make this smell that everybody in the cities of Rome would know what it smelled like. And it was a beautiful thing. Paul is borrowing from that and acknowledging that God uses him as well as the other apostles who spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they are going through the cities spreading the aroma of Christ. They are making their smell known. So where are we to spread this aroma of Christ? Where? Wherever we are. Notice Paul says, everywhere. Everywhere. You and I, wherever we go, it's the same principle. We are to be salt. We are to be light. We are to bring the aroma of Christ to others. The way we live and what we speak. When we come into a room, we come around people, they should know that something's different about us because we have that special cologne, that special perfume. And they know that that's the Father's perfume. That's the Father's cologne. Well, how long should we do it? Well, how about this? Until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, covers the waters, cover the sea. It says in Habakkuk. Till that day, we continue be God's aroma to the world, to a lost and dying world. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I love this commentary from John Calvin. It says this, the aroma of his knowledge, the triumph consisted in this, that God, through his instrumentality, worked powerfully and gloriously perfuming the world with the health-giving aroma of his grace, while by means of his doctrine, he brought some to the knowledge of Christ. He carries out, however, the metaphor of aroma by which he expresses both the delectable sweetness of the gospel and its power and efficacy for inspiring life. That's beautiful. The power of the, of the aroma as well. <clears throat> Let me say something else about the aroma of Christ. It's very, very important. It's not in the passage, but I think you all will understand it. We can't change it. We can't change the formula. Why? Because the fragrance that Paul's talking about is what? It's the word of God. It's the gospel. The formula for this perfume is perfect. Adding something to it won't help it. Subtracting something from it won't help it. You don't change grandma's recipe for apple pie or chocolate chip cookies. Right? They're, they're in stone. They're perfect. The problem is, is that many of us think we can add something to it or subtract from it to make it smell better. We do that maybe by pulling things out of the Bible and say, well, we don't want to discuss that part of the Bible because that, that probably doesn't smell good to them. Right? We have whole denominations doing that. 
Or we may add some of our own cheap perfume, and I'll call that the prosperity gospel, to make it smell even sweeter, and thinking that that's what will attract people in, to make it more inviting. You and I cannot change the word of God. It is perfect, and the Father loves the aroma. It's Jesus Christ, his son. And when we spread through the word of God, it is, we're spreading Jesus. We must heed the warning from Moses. He said, do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. The knowledge of Jesus Christ is the word of God. It needs no additives or subtractions. It stands on its own. Because in the end, as we'll see in this passage, it is going to do what it was intended to do. Why? Because God's word never fails. Isaiah said, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, and it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And this leads to my third point, final point, the reaction. People will respond differently to the aroma of Christ. They will either love it, like the chocolate chip cookies, or they will hate it, like that dirty diaper. Or in some cases, they will... They're indifferent to it, all right? But in the end, the Bible says they hate it because they do not want to fall under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Notice it says we are the aroma of Christ to God, sweet smelling, but we are also either the aroma of death to those who are perishing or the aroma of life to those who are being saved. Let's talk about the aroma of death first. What does Paul mean? Paul is speaking from the vantage point of an apostle as he carried out his mission. He saw different results when he preached the gospel and where he spread the aroma of Christ. For example, in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas go to Antioch and they preach the gospel. And it says... And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. But notice what else happens a couple verses down. But the Jews stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook the dust off their feet against them. Remember, Jesus told the apostles, when you go out to buy two by twos, he said to them, if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake off the dust as a testimony against them. That's what Paul and Barnabas were doing. But notice the response. The same aroma gospel was put forth. To ones, it was beautiful. It was accepting. They loved it. They rejoiced in it. And the other ones turned their nose at it and said, get out of here, and tried to get him out of Dodge. And you see that throughout the book of Acts. 
For you see, those who refuse the gospel message, the consequence of it is death. But for those who believe it, it's life, eternal life. And you know those that hear, and there may be some in here today, you hear the word, you hear the word of God preach, you've been going to Sunday school, you hear the word, and you reject it. Because it's death. And that's why we would always say, you need to turn and repent and ask Christ into your heart. Jesus said the same in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. We don't talk about God's wrath much, do we? We don't talk about wrath. We don't talk. Jackson told me I should preach on hell. <laughs> said, I don't know, Jackson. Most people, we don't want to hear about hell, you know. Jesus talked a lot about hell. If you recall back a couple months ago in Joe's study of Luke, you might remember when they were, when uh, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple, um, it says there was an old guy there by the name of Simeon who was waiting. He was waiting for the Messiah to come, it says, so he could go off and die. He was old, and he's like, the Lord told me, told him he's going to see the Messiah, and then he'll die. And so he comes up, and he sees the baby Jesus, and he says something startling. Listen to this in Luke 2.34. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You see, some will fall, some will rise, some will smell the aroma of Christ and embrace it from life to life, some will smell and it will be as death. But for those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be life to life. And not only life, but what did Jesus say? I came that you might have life and life more abundantly. <clears throat> Some of you probably have heard of a great uh, preacher in England, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones used to tell a story. It kind of <clears throat> it's around this particular concept, but where... Uh, there's a story of the William Wilberforce. You all know who William Wilberforce is, the great abolitionist in England. But William Wilberforce was great friends with Sir William Pitt, who was a prime minister of England, who, by the way, the great city of Pittsburgh was named after. So, you know, uh, Wilberforce was a strong Christian. And uh, Pitt, he was kind of nominal. He probably belonged to the church, but... But Wilberforce took him to see Richard Cecil, one of his uh, great evangelical preachers back in the day that Wilberforce just loved. And as Lloyd-Jones recounts a story, he says, Richard Cecil preached and expounded the glories of the kingdom of God and the relationship of the child of God to the Father. And Wilberforce was in ecstasy, rejoicing, reveling in his glorious truth. And he was wondering, what about Pitt? So at the end of the service, they walk out, 
And you can imagine what Wilberforce was wondering. Oh, what a wonderful sermon. I hope he heard it, you know. And as soon as they get outside, the vestibule pit turns to Wilberforce and says, I didn't understand a word of that, what that man was talking about. Why? His eyes weren't open. His sniffers were closed. But to Wilberforce, it was the aroma of Christ, but not to Pitt. You know, this should take a great burden off you and my heart when it comes to sharing the gospel. We are not responsible for the conversion of other people. That is totally a work of the Holy Spirit. We're just told to wear the perfume, the cologne, and go out. To some, it'll smell great, and the others, it won't. That's the Holy Spirit's responsibility, not yours, not mine. We can't change people. Only God can change people. How much time I got left? All right. All right, I'm going to wrap it up. So Paul uses a strong metaphor that we are the aroma of Christ. Similar to the metaphors, we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Again, this particular metaphor, this idea goes back to being a sweet-smelling sacrifice, just like the sacrifices of old in the Old Testament were. You know, when Christ changes us, we are new. We are new creations in Christ. We now smell differently. You smell good. So what do we do with this new life? What do we do as a life of a a believer? Well, we offer it back to God as a sacrifice. You know, after Paul gave the greatest treatise ever on our salvation in the book of of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, he starts off with these simple words. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. After he explained all of what our salvation is about, how beautiful it is, verses like nothing can separate you from the love of God. And if he is God is for you, who can be against you? And now you know you have all that, that good smell and perfume. Now what? You go live it. You live it out. Peter says something very similar in 1 Peter where he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Here it is. To offer spiritual sacrifices. A sweet aroma acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In this new covenant, we offer our lives. We take up our cross daily and follow him. We choose each day to be faithful to his call. When opportunity presents itself, we share the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we spread his aroma. And yes, pastors and evangelists have a higher calling in this regard, and Paul was identifying himself as such in this letter. But it is up to each of us to continue to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Christ wherever we go, both in word and in deed. Spread it around your house (laughs) to your family. We forget that. 
the love of Jesus Christ. It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Fruit coming out, smelling good. We need to be just like those priests with their censers. That's what they were doing when the Roman general was coming in. Or we might be like those girls with the petals, the rose petals, wherever we go, making our mark. By the way, if you wear, and you know this, if you wear a strong cologne or perfume, right, it goes with you wherever you go. And everybody smells it, right? In fact, think about it. That's why are you putting it on? So others will smell you and you smell good, right? We just need to keep swinging those sensors. We need to keep spreading those petals. I think Colossians 3.15, I'm going to close with this, captures very well what's this idea of spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And listen to these words from Paul. Let the word of Christ, the aroma of Christ, dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns with spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your heart to God. Let the word of God, God's aroma, dwell in you and me richly so it will start coming out wherever we go. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are the aroma of Christ. Now let us go and spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere we go. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, that you lead us triumphantly in our salvation towards you. And one day we will be with you together for eternity. And Lord, in the meantime, we need help sometimes. We're not walking as we should. I pray you would help us, Lord, to exude the aroma of Christ. Help us to recognize each day how you have blessed us. And let us take that blessing, Lord, that we may offer unto you our sacrifice, taking up our cross every day, walking in faith, seeking after you. Lord, I pray that you would just move on the hearts of all that have heard this message today. Lord, if there's anyone that does not know you, I pray that this message this morning would be a message there, Lord, that impacts their heart. It would be such a fragrance, an aroma of Christ that would cause them to be born again. We thank you and we praise you and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.